This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dreamland. My name is Kelly Chase, and I am the new monthly guest host of this show. For those of you who don't know me, I am the host of the UFO Rabbit Hole podcast and the co-founder of the media company Ontocalypse Productions. I was absolutely honored that Whitley asked me to take on this gig. I'm a huge fan of Whitley, of this podcast, and I really feel that Whitley is one of just the brightest thinkers, writers, and human beings in this topic. So it's an absolute honor to be here with all of you, and I hope to do this show justice. In my first episode with you, I'm going to be introducing you to a dear friend of mine, Dr. James Madden. Jim is a professor of philosophy and also the author of the recently published book, Unidentified Flying Hyperobject, UFOs, Philosophy, and the End of the World. This book is already making a huge splash in ufology, earning praise from the likes of people like Jeffrey Kripal and Diana walsh Basalka. I'm really excited to dive into it more with you all here. I think it's one of the most interesting and compelling books that's been put out in the last several years, and it really gives us a way to start thinking new thoughts in the field of ufology, which is something that we've needed for a long time. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest, James Madden. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the show. Great to be here, Kelly, as always. Uh, I guess my well, first time here. But it's great to talk to you as always. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's my it's my first time here too. Right. <laughs> so we can we can do it together for the first time. Um, well, it's wonderful to talk to you. Uh, obviously, listeners of my show are very familiar with you, but um, for listeners of Dreamland who maybe aren't familiar with your work, um, can you maybe start us off by just introducing yourself and telling us how you, as a professor of philosophy, ended up in this real, weird world of ufology? Sure. Yeah. Well, that's a good question. Uh, sometimes I ask myself that. Um, <laughs> so, you know, as you know, I, I actually point this out in the book we're going to talk about. And, you know, those of who, have, who have met me before electronically like this will know, I was really not into the UFO topic until, you know, in the last few years, like a lot of people. And um, <laughs> literally what happened for me is uh, I was watching X-Files uh, with my teenage kids. Okay. Cause we, we try to expose them to the good things in life. Okay. And, um, in the, right when we got to the end of season one was when the, the first big Pentagon briefing happened where that summer 2021, right. Um, thought, wow. So suddenly the Pentagon is sort of saying, you're not crazy. If you think Fox Mulder was right. I mean, I know it wasn't quite that good, but it, it really struck me that this, this piece of lore that I grew up with was seemingly moving from mere lore to something that was like being taken seriously at the levels of the Pentagon. Of course, that whether it's being taken seriously or not, it was controversial, but it was in the dialogue at the Pentagon in a way it had never been in my lifetime before. Right. And so uh, at that point, uh, I, you know, I started listening to podcasts and things. I started reading books for it on the first time. You know, I'm, I'm sort of a book guy. So that's how I react to all things is, is I find the books and read them. Um, I would like a lot of people who had never looked at this before, I mean, maybe who had been like unduly dismissive of it was just shocked by how good a lot of the literature on the UFO was from a scholarly standpoint. Uh, not to say it isn't mixed like any body of literature, but there, I was very impressed with, you know, authors I read like John Keel, right? Authors I read like Jack Fillet, authors like, like I read like, like, like Strieber. Um, and, and it, for me, it was to the point where I, I don't think this can be ruled out. Okay. We can't rule this out, which then began uh, a process of thinking about it. And, I, and initially I didn't really think it was something that a philosopher could contribute to. Okay. Um, and then I read, uh, you know, Diana Pasolko stuff and that really changed a lot because I saw someone trained not in the exact same field as I'm in, right. But, but a related field in the humanities actually making a contribution to this and raising thinkers like Heidegger and Nietzsche, um, that are, are right in my toolbox. And I realized, well, no, there probably is a contribution a philosopher can make to this. At the same time, I, I was writing a book on philosophy of mind um, and cognitive science, and I was starting to see dovetailings between the issues that I was working on in sort of my day job and the issues that were coming up for me in my sort of intellectual hobby. Uh, and I started to see a road where I think a philosopher could make, make a contribution to this. Right? And that process you know, culminated with me uh, writing, you know, unidentified flying hyperobjects, 
uh, UFOs, Philosophy, and the End of the World, which uh, came out with Ontakalypse Press. I'm very grateful to Kelly for all her help with that. Um, and so here I am. I'm, I'm a, you know, a mid-career academic who suddenly found himself uh, unawares as a ufologist. Well, it's been really cool to watch your work as it developed. I've been lucky enough to, you know, be friends with you while all of that was going on. And I know it's been kind of a whirlwind for you since the book was published back in November. Um, what have you been up to now? Like, how have things changed and what sure. are you working on next? Well, there's, there's been lots of podcasts okay, uh, with, with the book coming out. Though I have to say, uh, getting to come back and podcast with, with you again, Kelly, it's like, it's like, you know, Paul McCartney and John Lennon getting get back together for another, although we didn't break up. They're <laughs> getting back together for like one more benefit concert or something like that. It's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I've loved podcasting. Um, I went to, uh, um, my first UFO, uh, uh, conference, right. Where we saw each other there. Right. Um, I, uh, continue to write my sub stack. Uh, and I, I recently uh, put a piece out analyzing Bernardo Kasprup's take on the UFO that he published recently. So people actually might look at that. Um, I have I have been uh, recently named as a member of the board of advisors to um, the Society for the Study of UAPs, right? Which that's a great honor. I'm very excited about that and seeing where that goes. Um, and other than that, you know, I'm uh, just continuing to read, write, and think. That's awesome. And I heard you have a new course coming up on morbid oh, yes. anatomy also. Yes. Can you tell us a yeah, bit I'm, about that? I'm going to be doing a course uh, through an organization called Morbid Anatomy. Uh, they're uh, uh, basically an online uh, college. I mean, I mean, not accredited, but they, they just offer an array of classes, mostly in, in aesthetics and um, psychoanalysis. And, uh, and now they've moved into doing some courses on ufology. Um, so Diana Paselka has taught a couple of courses there. Um, I've did one previously on philosophy of technology, but now I'm going to do a course on my book, uh, uh unidentified flying hyperobject through them. It's going to begin it. What'll it be, it'll begin the last Wednesday of March. So, but check out morbid anatomy, uh, on the interweb, uh, for, for the dates when those come up. Awesome. That's wonderful. So excited for that. And uh, I think it's really great because listeners here today, we can give them a little bit of a sneak peek about, you know, exactly what your book is about. I think that what excites me most about your book is that it offers ideas that are novel and different than, you know, it, it's been a while. It takes a lot to really bring something new to this field. And uh, I think you've managed to do that by approaching it from a philosophical angle, which really hasn't been done before. So right. Um, I'd love to kind of just dive into some of your thinking that contributed to this book. I think one of the things that I learned about from you and from this book that I've found to be so helpful in understanding UFOs and also just not to steal the name of your book, but thinking about thinking, you know, how do we how do we think about the way that we think is the idea of um, object-oriented ontology. And I thought maybe we could start there if you want to talk a little bit about what sure. that is. Sure. You know, yeah, definitely. I, think it's, I actually think that is the right place to start to talk about this work. And um, it's interesting, you know, when you go, when you write a book, okay, and this actually will fit some of the things I'm saying in the book. It's like the book sort of takes on a life of its own, right? It becomes bigger than you in a lot of ways. And I have found every time I've done an interview about it, I've learned things about my own book that, that I don't think I was really aware of. Okay. And I think the, the sum total of all the interviewing I've done since we last talked, I think it's shown me that really um, the book is about, in a lot of ways, ontological shock. Okay. okay. And that term ontological shock gets used quite a bit in ufology. Okay. You know, in, in I think it was introduced into the field by John Mack. Before that, you could find it used in a, a, a 20th century theologian uh, by the name of Paul Tillich. I think he coined the term. Um, but I, th I think one of the things that, as I was working my way into the UFO world, was I was kind of struck. And I, I know this is this is a little snotty, and I don't I don't mean that, okay? But I was kind of struck like how that notion of ontological shock got tossed around. But most of the proposals for what the UFO is, you know, most of the interpretations of it were not very shocking ontologically at all. Okay. Um, in a lot of ways, I think most of what I've encountered in it 
Um, although I think there's exceptions like John Keel, I think, um, pretty close to some of the stuff I'm up to. Okay. And there's others, right. Um, but I think, um, most of what I was encountering was really just doubling down on our going consensus ontology, right. As, as, as the winnowing fork for, for thinking about the UFO. And it, it wasn't seeing the UFO as actually putting our basic ontology into question at all. Okay. And the, the way I, the way I kind of bring this up in, in the book is I talk about, um, what I call the Goldilocks ontology. Okay. And the Goldilocks ontology is, is this, uh, is basically human beings, uh, you know, are, are evolved to deal with objects on a certain scale. Okay. Uh, if I asked, you know, if I asked, you know, Kelly to, to count the objects, uh, in the room that she's in right now, you know, she would say, you know, that she would count the chair she's sitting on. She would count probably herself. I would think, right. She would count, you know, the, the computer that she's working at. She'd count the desk, right. You know, you might count that, that lovely plant behind you and the posters and all those things. Okay. Unlikely that Kelly would, uh, include the photons in the room. Okay. Unlikely, you know, that Kelly would include the germs on the desk. Okay. Um, and in fact, if she brought either of those up, we might even find that a little odd. Okay. Unlikely that she would count the internet as an object in the room with her, right? Unlikely would she count the, um, you know, the, the Ohio power company. Okay. <laughs> Whoever's bringing your, your energy. Okay. Um, she wouldn't count those things. Okay. And why is that? Because I, I'm, I'm going to make a case here that those objects are very much in the room with her right now too, but she's not going to count those or you want to count those sort of third person thing. Uh, you want to count those because humans are basically evolved to deal with these sort of, to use a, a common phrase in philosophy, these middle sized dried goods that we can get our hands on, that we can see with our eyes, that we can touch and smell that like make a practical difference for how we go about. Whereas like the photons don't really make a practical difference, right? Uh, the power company, the internet is not something we can get our hands on. So we're always biased to think about things in that Goldilocks ontology. Okay. So we tend to, whenever we're confronted with something, we put it into, we think of it on a scale of the things that we can put our hands on. Okay. And this, and even, even if we, if we think there are such things as immaterial objects, if you think, say like a human mind or a human soul is an immaterial object. We tend to think of it as, you know, sort of like a ghost, which is more or less just you, but invisible. We still think of it as this sort of Goldilocks sized object, quote unquote, in that case, right? On a ba on the basic scale of things that we were evolved to deal with. Okay. And so I think inevitably then when we encounter something like the UFO, what do we do? We, um, we translate it. We put it into our Goldilocks ontology. We think of it as something on the scale we're used to dealing with. So it's, just a spaceship now. Okay. Right. It's, it's something like a demon or an angel, which there though, is that already kind of putting it on an individuated person scale that, that we're used to dealing with. Okay. And so it seemed to me to make, this is my kind of my critique of ufology is it seemed to me that most of what I was seeing in ufology by going into, you know, the nut, the classic nuts and bolts versus the classic angels, demons, spirits, fairies thing was really not seeing the UFO as questioning our ontology, but it was just a, a further extension of our normal human evolved uh, ontology. Uh, is that a good start, do you think? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great start. And I mean, it really struck me when you introduced that idea to me because I know that when I started doing this work, um, I had been doing the podcast and studying UFOs for over a year before I realized that I'd actually had a second UFO sighting. I knew I had had one, but the second yeah. one that I didn't like classify as a UFO sighting was it did, was because it didn't look like what I thought a UFO should look like. It didn't look like a ship. It didn't look like, um, you know, it was kind of translucent and fuzzy and uh, it didn't look like something that so could have passengers necessarily. Yeah. And so I didn't think of it as a UFO. And so that idea really resonated with me because I recognized how easy it is to miss things when we're categorizing them in these very sort of narrow ways. Right. Right. And, and I want to be careful too, because I'm not saying like the desk that Kelly's sitting at isn't real. Okay. 
I, I think it is real. I'm, I'm, I'm not an idealist. I'm a realist. So I think that desk is real. Okay. I think it's real even independently of us. Okay. Um, my point though is, is that desk is among a range of objects, um, that are just right for us. Okay. But there's no reason to think up front, the objects that are just right for us are the only objects. Okay. And we're going to tend to anything that we encounter that's outside of the Goldilocks zone of our perception and cognition. We're going to tend to try to force things into the Goldilocks zone. Okay. So another way that uh, I do this in the book, uh, and the way the, the way I do this in the book is I, as I, and this is how I like to proceed in general in teaching and in writing is I come at something from a lot of different angles to hit the same idea um, from these different angles, and hopefully it adds up to like a more plastic understanding. Is you know, there's a, a famous example that's drawn from uh, behavioral biology and it's, it's had some work in phenomenological philosophy and it's had some work in cognitive science now, this notion of an umwelt, okay? And an umwelt, it literally means in German, around the world. And it often gets translated uh, as environment, but I, I want to be careful with that because I think that means something very different to us in English, okay? But think of like the umwelt is basically our Goldilocks ontology. Okay. And to motivate this, there's a, a famous example that's used of, about a tick. Okay. So uh, apparently there's some kind of tick that's basically got three senses. Okay. And all it has is it can, it can sense the amount of, I think it's butyric acid, mammalian skin acid in its immediate environment. So it can, it can sense when there's more or less skin acid in its environment. It can sense differences in the, the in temperature. So it, you know, it can see heat signals, see quote unquote heat signals. And it can feel differences in the tension on a surface that it's on. So it could like feel where skin is stretched tightly, I think is how it goes. And with those three senses alone, that tick can time its jump on you when you're walking by in a way that it's going to get to the vein and, you know, put its uh, stinger in there and suck your blood. All right. And think of it, that tick, it has, it has a very limited sensory package. It's got those three senses and that's it. It's whole uh, Goldilocks ontology is just built on the information that it gets from, from those senses. All right. Um, and so, you know, when, it, when that tick jumps on me and bites me, all right, it's getting something right about me, right? I do indeed emit butyric acid. I do indeed have, give out heat signals. I do indeed have surface tensions on my skin, all that. All right. Um, so it's getting me right. The problem is, is what I am far transcends anything that's in the tick's umwelt, okay? Uh, and the way that this gets put in, in, in Heideggerian phenomenology and uh, in an object or ontology, which we'll work our way towards here, is that I, as an object, withdraw from the tick's umwelt. I withdraw from it. I'm, I'm, I'm in it, but I'm always running away from it. And there's more of me running away from it than, than, I, than I dip into, into the umwelt of the tick, okay? And so, but now no, like think of what we were just talking about is we humans are no less bound to a narrow umwelt than is the tick. Uh, you know, our, our senses have been evolved to do certain very practical things. There are other ways, other things that could have been done. There are other practical demands that could have been made on us such that our senses would have evolved in different directions. Notice the tick. Uh, you and I are not sensing the butyric acid in our environment right now, though it's right here around us. Okay. And so it seems then we have to say that we too are, uh, in a limited umwelt, it's real. The stuff we sent, I think, is there. However, uh, it's not all that's there, and the object really withdraws from us. So in the same way that we withdraw from the tick, there's more to our being than is ever apparent to the tick. Likewise, the tick withdraws from us. There's more to the tick's being, probably, than is ever, what is ever apparent to us as human beings, however hard we think and, and research, because it's always going to be tied back to our basic perceptual package. Okay. So the idea then is it's objects as we encounter them are always sort of transcendent of our packaging of them. Okay. Which then means like the world then once you, once you make that move is very mysterious, right? There's as much in what I call the Uber umbelt, right? The, or the, the, the super around world, the world that's beyond what's around us. There's always more in that than what's in our around world in our umbelt, which means, you know, we should not be surprised when we're surprised. Okay. Because it, uh, there's always more. Okay. And maybe occasionally we bump into things that are just at the edge of our Goldilocks ontology, right? They don't really fit. They're just at the edge. Uh, and you would think our experience of those things would be 
that they would be quite uncanny. One of our favorite words, right? Mm-hmm. It would be quite uncanny. They'd be unexpected. We might even say they would be alien to us. Okay. And, and you can see where I'm going here is in general, I think if we start thinking in terms of the, this umbelt, uber umbelt distinction, we're on our way, in my view, to something like a grand theory of everything weird. Okay. Or it's sort of non-theory theory. Cause we're saying it's not accountable in anything intelligible to us, but it's an account of it. It makes sense that there would be weird things now. I think that's fantastic. And I'm excited to dive into that more, which we'll do right after this commercial break. Have you ever read communion or have you never read communion? It's out in a new edition, very powerful, a subtly new cover that reflects the fact that the visitors are now looking back at us because they truly are. You can get it from the unknowncountry.com store as a Kindle, as a beautiful, sumptuous paperback, or as an unabridged audiobook read by me. It's the first time in the whole life of communion that it has been read in full in audio format. And believe you me, I felt that reading. I put my life, my memories into it, and I trust you can hear it in the voice. I sure felt it while I was reading. So get communion, listen to it, read it. Communion is of central importance to all of our lives. All right, and we're back. So, Jim, I absolutely love this idea that you're presenting. I think that there's so many fascinating doors that it opens up. And I also am really struck by how it dovetails so nicely with some of the revelations that are coming out in sort of the more nuts and bolts side of disclosure ufology. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, things like when we think about the fact that uh, things that David Grush is talking about, we're not just talking about you know, bodies of non-human intelligences, but biologics is this word that's suddenly been introduced into the conversation. Um, And there's long been this suggestion that perhaps uh, some of the beings that are most often seen like gray aliens might actually be some sort of artificial being powered by AI or something like that. And, you know, when you talk about this, it makes me think how much that makes sense, that if you were something that existed in our uber umfeld and something that maybe we aren't designed to deal with that perhaps your intermediary would be some kind of an avatar that we would recognize as something that we could interact with and communicate with but would also be so different from us that we would understand that it was alien in some yeah. way and so i just i find it to be really valuable and that's just one of the many ways that comes to mind if we wanted to like reach out to the ticks how would we do it <laughs> right exactly. uh, we'd have to- figure out something relevant to their, to their umfeld. Okay. It, we'd have to do it in terms of like skin acid. Okay. And, and think of it, yeah, even in, in our attempts to do it would always come off as clumsy and weird to the tick because you know, it's not our jam. And, and so you, you could say, yeah, the, the things that come to us from the Uber umfeld are uncanny and weird because whatever's trying to do this is trying to remind us that there's something more. It could be part of the message. It would also be just, it's inherently clunky to, to try to talk across the, the, the Umwelt, Uber Umwelt divide too. Well, and that's something that you and I have talked about a lot in kind of our personal conversations with regard to a lot of the themes in Whitley's book, Them, where he talks about, he kind of makes some of those same points and tries to kind of dissect how a truly non-human intelligence might try to communicate with us. Right. Right. And, and I think, um, this is something I, I, I bring up. It's in the book and I, and I did it again in the, in the piece I just did in my Substack about Castrop's, uh, take on, on the, uh, UFO or the UAP. And the point is, is, is it, it seems to me that it, this is probably not something that can be figured out from our end. <laughs> okay. That it, I mean, that's one of the th- that's one of the themes of my my stuff in general is what the UFO is doing more than anything is is just revealing to us the limits of human cognition and the limits of human perception. 
Okay. Like I think this notion of the liminal is really, is, is important in many ways and it comes up. And, and for me, um, it, it, we have to be open that this might be a limit we can't go beyond. Right. And, and that, and that maybe what the UFO can do for us is remind us that in fact, we do live in one among many possible umbelt and there is a great uber umbelt out there and the ball is not always in our court, right? That maybe there is a place where, where humans do need to collect or be listened for something else, right? Um, because the, our attempts to like sort of put it, our attempts to make sense of it are always going to pull it back into our Goldilocks ontology, which is precisely where it doesn't belong. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, the way that you take it one step further in the book that I think is really cool is with this idea of a hyper object. So maybe we can just start with the idea of like what a hyper object is. Sure, sure. Okay, so let's go back to you know, our inventory of, of the room, okay? You know, like, like uh, you know, although I, oh, Kelly's a good philosopher, so she would have counted the photons and she would have mentioned the internet, but, you know, sort of a, a more naive, okay. Um, you know, you know, especially Kelly wouldn't like mention the internet as an object with her probably, right? Or the power company's object with her, okay? There's a famous, and when I mean famous, I mean very old uh, debate about this sort of thing, going back to Aristotle. And Aristotle, and I won't necessarily go into all the details of the argumentation here, but Aristotle makes a very good case that any, anything that has an integrity of its own, meaning it, you know, it would continue to be what it is, even though its parts can be replaced, okay, and anything that has a kind of control over its parts, all right, and anything that has powers and ability that its parts don't have, if something meets those criteria, then it's a real object in and of itself. Okay. It's not just something you can reduce to or say is replaceable by its parts. Okay. Aristotle mainly has in mind organisms here. Uh, you know, he likes to point out that, you know, take, take, you know, your, your cat, you know, fluffy and, you know, fluffy could, you know, survive an incremental replacement of all of her parts. Right. I mean, literally through metabolism several times throughout her lifetime, all of her parts at the lowest level of, of analysis are going to get changed over with parts in the environment. But you still have Fluffy. The cat still remains. So it seems like the cat has an integrity independently of the presence of the parts that compose it now. Like, likewise, you know, the, all the molecules and subatomic particles that compose Fluffy behave differently because they are in Fluffy's composition. They do different things that they, that they wouldn't do outside of her body. The, the, so there's a kind of control the organism has over its parts. Um, and then finally, you know, um, the molecules composing fluffy don't hunt, they don't date in the cat way, they don't grow hair all on their own, et cetera, et cetera. So there are powers fluffy has that her parts don't have. So Aristotle says, ergo, fluffy's an object, fluffy's a substance, right? Over and above her parts. Okay. We can't just say we're gonna have a material story about the cat that replaces it or just reduces it entirely to a story about its parts. Doesn't mean there's some magic gizmo that's making fluffy be. Fluffy is something like an emergent entity or, or a compositional entity. That's all fine. But, but Aristotle uh, would assert, yeah, but Fluffy is though an entity. And when we're counting things in the universe, we do count Fluffy. We don't just count her parts. Okay. Now, a guy named Grab Harmon uh, is a contemporary philosopher and uh, I think very well worth reading. Um, and you know, I, I don't know if you do show notes in this or not, but we get some references in there if you do. Um, Harmon argues, well, he didn't think Aristotle went far enough because okay? Aristotle says, okay, so the, the basic material stuff, the chemical level stuff is real and then Fluffy's real, but then Aristotle's not going to count something like the population of cats as an object, right? He'll count Kelly and Jim as real and the parts of us as real in autonomous ways, but he's not going to count our friendship as an object, okay? Or our political community, community as an object. Only in a very derivative sense. But Harmon, and this I love this example. Harmon uses the example of a Pizza Hut restaurant. Okay. I don't know if this means he likes Pizza Hut or he has a beef against it. Uh, he uses the example of Pizza Hut. And he says, well, take any, any Pizza Hut restaurant. Um, it will survive an incremental replacement of its parts. You know, probably, you know, everyone who works at that Pizza Hut probably won't work there 10 years from now. You know, slowly over time, all of the equipment's going to get replaced. You know, maybe maybe the building's rickety, so all of its parts over time could get replaced. And we would still say the Pizza Hut restaurant persists independently of its parts in a way. Clearly, the Pizza Hut restaurant has um, 
powers that the parts don't have. Like none of those things can make Pizza Hut pizza independently of the restaurant. Okay. So it has its own powers and it exerts a certain control. Like we all behave differently because we're in Pizza Hut than we would elsewhere. Um, otherwise we'd get kicked out. Okay. Or fired. All right. So Harmon says, well, in what sense then is Pizza Hut, the Pizza Hut restaurant, not an object in the same sense that I am, that you are, that the chair you're sitting on, that Fluffy the cat is an object. He says it meets all the criteria. So he says, look, if we're, if we're going to be fair here, then the, then the restaurant's an object. Okay. But then Harman says, what about the pizza corporation? Well, yeah, we, the same argument worked. It has an influence on its parts. It, it will persist through the change of its parts. Um, it has a kind of definitely has control over its parts. Okay. So it looks like the, the corporation pizza, pizza Inc is an object now, a substance operating autonomously on its own. And we can keep extending that. So probably could, we could say the same thing about the economy or about the environment. And it looks like we're, there's all these grand, massive, systematic entities in the same way that an organism is a systematic entity that are operating in ways autonomous to their parts. Okay. Another philosopher by the name of, of Timothy Morton comes along and Morton uh, adopts the term hyperobject to talk about this. He says, yeah, there, there are objects that are so grand in scale that operate on such large, like literal geographic scales and literal temporal scales, and that would be important for us, um, that we only get a little glimpse of them. Like no one can get a picture of the Pizza Hut Corporation. We can go and look at this or that restaurant, but this or that restaurant is really just a part or an expression of a controlled entity of the corporation that is Pizza Hut. No one can get a full glimpse of the economy. We just can see this or that unemployment line, this or that you know, bank statement or what have you. And those are just expressions, right, of the overall system. You know, we can't really see the environment because it's too big, too large, operating too long, too big of a time scale for us to deal. But we can experience this or that, you know, storm or this or that flood or this or that sunny day, whatever. Uh, you see, the point is there are objects that, that withdraw from us, okay, not, that are withdrawn to us into the Uber Umfeld that are operating at scales we can't fathom, okay, that we just can't fathom. And so um, the, the point I'm, what I, what I want to propose is it could be that what we're witnessing as the nuts and bolts aspect of the, the UFO or even the high strangeness aspect of the UFO are all expressions of a grand hyper object, a systematic entity that is operating in our Uber Umbelt. I think that's fascinating. And it, I think those two, those two ideas together, like you've said, they don't necessarily commit us to anything, but they give us room to understand what might be going on. And I think to also argue for the thing that is sometimes hardest to argue for, especially among kind of the uninitiated and people who are new to these ideas, which is just how weird these things are, that they're right that they are unintelligible to us on in a very profound way often at times. And, and that makes so much sense if it's coming from something outside of our own belt. And if it also is potentially something that is a hyper object where we're only seeing just, you know, a, a piece of it instead of the whole thing, it kind of explains why the high strangeness element is so persistent in these experiences. Yeah, because it, it is literally coming at us from outside of our very capacity for sense making so it, it 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 literally will not make sense to us okay and and i think it's important to, to see here is um this should this this ontological increase should come at fairly low expense evidentially in that not not without evidence but but low expense evidentially and what i mean by that is I think there's good reasons already to think that there are hyperobjects. I mean, I think, I think the case that Morton makes for the environment is a hyperobject, the economy is a hyperobject. I think the, um, the case that Graham Harmon makes for the civil war being an object still on the loose and world having effects. I think there's very good cases to be made for this. So I'm not asking us to add something that we, that we don't already have very good evidence for as a category. Um, and so since we already kind of have this, or at least a lot of us have this in, the, in our explanatory back pocket, it's easy then to deploy that in looking at the UFO. So now there, it seems like there's this whole 
technological system out there that's producing machinery, okay, and and psychological experiences too, that is is operating in ways we don't understand. Okay. Well, if you could have an environmental system, you could have an economic system right, that's operating on scales we don't quite fathom. Why couldn't a technological system operate on scales that we couldn't fathom? Okay. But I think, you know, I, my, I will say my theory has a harder time making sense of the nuts and bolts part of it, but I think it can make sense of it to say, you know, um, there may very well be technological systems that are vast and all-encompassing that are operating over Umbelt and we're just seeing little, little flickers of them in our Umbelt, which is the nuts and bolts stuff. Well, another idea that you present in the book that I find to be really fascinating um, is that is that this could be potentially something that we kicked off. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, look at, take the economy. I mean, it, it's, it, it is composed by not just humans standing around, it's composed by humans doing things. Okay. So there's a sense in which the economy is an artifact of human doing. But notice no one planned it. No one sat down and said, Let, let's have an economy. As much as we like to think we do that, we don't. Um, and so, that, so it's, what is the economy? It's this sort of hybrid thing that happens uh, when you have an interaction between certain human natural doings and something else in the world that those human natural doings interact with and then thereby create this grand hybrid object. Um, this is something that's explored quite a bit by a philosopher named uh, Bruno Latour uh, mm -hmm. in his book. I think the best place to start for that for him would be, we have never been modern. Okay. And so... And, you know, Morton points out how, you know, there are now, um, earth scientists, geologists, uh, environmental scientists who, who talk about the Anthropocene as a, like a, a, a geological age of the earth. Okay. And Morton makes the case that he thinks the Anthropocene is a thing now doing its own thing, operating on its own, but it was, it resulted from humans doing things, going about our human business in certain ways, unreflectively than interacting with an environment. And that interaction brings about a higher order object that now seems to be running the show from top down. And so, um, you know, look, uh, you have the UFO, although I think, you know, we can, we can make the case that there's always been some kind of, you know, appearance of thing in the sky, the humans. Um, in Valet's work, you see that. In, in, in Carl Jung's work, you see that. A lot of people are, are, have pointed that out. But it picks up, it takes off, as it were, in the mid-20th century or maybe a little earlier than that. And well, I think this hypothesis can make sense of that because suddenly human beings are literally going into parts of the earth we've never gone to before up in the sky with our technology. Uh, we're doing things like introducing uh, all sorts of communications technology, radio, television, all these things that are having a human effect in wavelengths and like in, in different places, literally, than we've never had an effect before. And, and then we, you know, we, we start lighting off nukes, okay? And so we introduce all these new things into the world. Well, it seems perfectly plausible then that, that our getting out of our lane, our kind of moving beyond what we were originally evolved to do you know, in our umwelt, it's causing us to interact with things that were out there that we've never really encountered before. And the result of that is going to be a new systematic object, a new hyper object, okay, that's going to now have a downward effect on us and whatever the heck was out there that we bumped into, okay? And so once again, it's sort of like the, the, the UFO as a single kind of organism that is, has emerged from the human interaction with the environment, much like the Anthropocene is sort of like an organism that emerges from the human interaction with the environment. Or, or you know, the Civil War was an organism or is an organism of its own that emerged from a human interaction with this environment. Uh, I'm proposing that maybe the UFO is something like that. I think that's really profound. And it also speaks to something that experiencers and contactees have been reporting for decades, which is that they are getting some kind of a message from non-human intelligences that boils down to, you know, we are you. And yeah. maybe maybe they are us in the same way that the economy is us and the satellites orbiting the planet are us. And but it's some kind of in some bit we We've sparked a hyper object that is us, yeah. but is also yeah. kind of able to have this downward effect on us also, able to control in, us. In the same way that you might talk to the cells in your body and say, you are me. Like you, you, are, you are an interacting part of me. Um, 
or you could, or maybe you know, you are us is we emerged from your activity and now we have a life of our own and we're running it right which seems to be a, the a, a certain kind of trouble humans are good at getting ourselves into right of creating these systematic <laughs> holes that then run us right i.e the internet yeah no i think that makes so much sense there's one more idea in your book i want to get to and we'll do that okay. right after this commercial break sure where is the unknown country is it out there in the stars or is it also somewhere else is it in us in you unknown country join us today go to unknowncountry.com right now and join us join the questions join the search join the adventure unknowncountry.com there's no place like it in the world so the other idea in your book that i wanted to get to is obviously the second part of the title is ufos philosophy and the end of the world and we've talked about ufos we've talked about philosophy but um what exactly do you mean when you talk about the end of the world and why do you feel like that's so important and relevant to this conversation about ufos yeah that's a good question um you know one i mean just it's one of the tropes of of the ufo conversation is is apocalyptic so i'm, I'm playing on that a little bit okay maybe even having a little fun with it but also uh more seriously I mean, may, may, maybe the UFO portends the literal destruction of, of the, I mean, the planet will be fine. Destruction of the human race. Okay. Or, you know, like literally the destruction of sentience and the rest of the planet. Maybe, maybe that's it. I'm not ruling that out. Uh, we're doing our best to rule it in right now. It seems okay. Um, but when I say end of the world, I mean world more in the phenomenological sense of the world. And so we might've said. Um, you know, UFOs philosophy in the end of our umwelt. Okay. And my point is, is it does seem that the UFO is showing up for us, you know, at a point in our history when we sort of feel our sense-making abilities are starting to like fall apart a little bit, that we're getting ourselves into trouble that seem to outstrip the human ability to like reason our way out of. Okay. And, and Carl Jung, you know, you know, already in the fifties and, and I still think is like unmatched classic, uh, book on the UFO, he's already bringing this up. He said, you know, it's, it's not surprising to him as a psychoanalysis analyst that people are having these visions of technological objects in the sky portending the end, right. Or demanding a return to the whole again. It makes sense because he says, look, we're, we're, at a, we're at a moment of crisis unprecedented in human history that you know, humans have taken on the ability to destroy themselves. All right. And, and so, of course, that, that lends itself to a literal apocalyptic notion, but also lends itself to the sort of phenomenological apocalyptic notion is that it seems that uh, like all of our things that told us that like, like we, were, we were running, like we were special, we're running things, that the world is here for us. It looks like we're on the verge of making sure the world is going to get on very well without us through our own doing. And that leads to a kind of self-questioning um, that's, I think, radical in human history. All right. And it now now enter the UFO. And in no like Young is not dismissing the reality of the of the phenomena. I mean, you can tell like when you in when you read his book, he kind of wants to, but he just can't do it. He's like, you know, it's not just a projection. It's not just a projection, because he points out people see the tracks of them on the ground. You know, they, they, it's been tracked on radar, all these things. And so what, what's going on there is it, it seems like whatever is showing up here is showing up to us at a time where we really need to put ourselves into question in a way that humans have not before. Right. And it seems like, like repeatedly to me, the message of the UFO is, is anti-humanist, not anti-human, but anti-humanist to say, look, you guys are not the point of this whole thing. Uh, you guys are not really running the show. All right. It's, it's this sort of like message of humility. All right. 
And if you think of it, you know, so right now we're at this verge of not just nuclear annihilation, but this sort of like introduction of these other technologies with, you know, artificial general intelligence and the internet and all these things that seem to be like suggesting that we might be replaceable by our own technology that seem to be, you know, sort of like undermining our ability to like pay attention to anything, but our, but our own sort of worldly, you know, often vapid concerns, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I won't rehearse all the griping with the internet, right? Um, and at precisely that moment, you know, something is showing up and saying, hey, uh, don't you hear it? You guys aren't the point. And you're thinking you're the point is really what's undermining you right now. Like your very self-obsession is what is undermining you, right? And that to me, that the sort of the end of the humanist world, right, is I think what we're seeing with the UFO. I find that so fascinating because I do think that that's a sense that a lot of people have. You know, I think that in more fringe communities and, you know, even the experiencer community, that the idea that, or, you know, religious or spiritual communities, the idea that the end is nigh is kind of mm -hmm. ubiquitous. But yeah. I think that even among kind of just your everyday people walking down the street who don't think a lot about these things, that there's this sense that we have, especially in Western culture and probably globally, that we're about to come up against something from which we won't escape kind of in right. being the same thing that we are now. Yeah. And it's interesting how all of that is happening while this kind of growing emergence of non-human intelligence is is happening happening in our public awareness and you know, the emergence of AI and, you know, for the first time in decades, I think there's real anxiety about the use of nuclear weapons. Like, it feels like something that could potentially happen tomorrow and we wouldn't be totally shocked. And it's it's right. wild how that's all kind of happening at the same time. All at once. All at once. Right. They, they, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I agree. And, and, and you think of it, you know, just the, the kind of cultural changes that have gone on for both good and ill for the last couple of generations, the basic package of what a human life looks like from cradle to grave has changed very radically at a speed that it never has before. It's, it's been, I mean, for a couple hundred years, it's been a crazy upswing and change, but just in the last, you know, 70, 80 years, it's changed it's many ways for the better, but, um, it does seem at some point we're, we're like outrunning what we were evolved to do and and our abilities to make sense of the world that we're in are just evaporating around us right um now in 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 the kind of like heideggerian approach i have to these things um you know there's a gloominess about that they are our, our umbelt our sense-making possibilities are going away okay but there's a lot like the the only way we're going to get through our humanistic obsessions, which I think are our problem, that, that they're, they're the source of so many of our problems. The only way we're going to get through them or over them is to kind of ride this thing all the way down to the bottom. That's Heidegger's view. Is he just kind of, we're going to have to just ride the techno-nihilistic train all the way to the bottom. Because uh, then and only then will we be able to listen to something that might speak to us from the Uber Umbelt that might be able to turn us around. Okay. Um, so in a way, you know, I'm like this pessimistic optimist and that I think we're on rails that we can't get off of in terms of, in terms of wrecking our ability to make sense. But I also think that might be the only thing that's going to produce a kind of cognitive space for us to, to hear the message. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, you and I have talked about this personally a lot and, yeah. you know, I share <laughs> a lot of your pessimism about this. Um, but I'm also ultimately an optimist and I'm always looking for like, how can I, how can I feel good about this? Because I do feel like humans and humanity are a valuable thing. Right. And to watch us not necessarily even destroy ourselves, because it's hard to know if that's what's happening, but we're going to stop being the thing that we are. Our technology exactly. seems to have made that certain and and it makes it it strikes me that a lot of this what we're talking about is sort of it or it could be kind of a global initiatory process you know there's always that moment in the hero's journey where it seems like all hope is lost 
this yeah. it's that absolute like the pit of darkness where it feels like the hero is lost and it's all over and nothing is ever going to be good ever again but you manage to rise past that or rise to that occasion and and becomes and you do become something new in the process like that's a that story is ingrained into us um i guess i just worry that people don't have the the will and the self-awareness to rise to the occasion in that way that in some ways we become too passive. Um, yeah. But I do see an opportunity there. If you can rise to that dark moment and allow yourself to be transformed into the thing that you need to be to take it to the next level, that there is hope there, I think. And I try to, I try to cling to that. Yeah, me too. And, and I think you make, at the end of you make, you make, you strike one in favor of the pessimism in a way, you know, because you and I, and I think you're in agreement here is like the, the stakes aren't like Heidegger actually says this. He thinks the worst fate for us would not be nuclear annihilation or environmental annihilation. I mean, he's he, those, I mean, he doesn't take that lightly, but his view is that we would not do that to ourselves and just become oblivious to being entirely that we would be just so ensconced in our technological nightmare that we just cannot pay attention to anything but our own obsessions. Okay. Um, so I think there's a risk here that we, that we can become so distracted. We can become so, you know, huffing our own fumes so much. And now the technology is only making that worse that we can't listen. Okay. But then for me, that becomes, okay, that's the mission. That's like what you're doing. That's what, like what Lee's doing. That's what, you know, like a lot of people are doing is to say, look, there's, there seems to be something to try to get through to us. Let's look at that thing. Um, so for me, that becomes the mission statement. Yeah, I I was really influenced by your work in naming my media company Ontocalypse Productions. And Ontocalypse, for me, um, felt like a really important idea because I think that what we're talking about is more than just ontological shock. Like beginning, recognizing this hyper object at its edges and seeing yeah. it peep through our umvelt like that causes ontological shock right exactly that causes ontological shock but and on but i think that what we're approaching as a species is more of an ontological apocalypse which yeah. is you know where all of those things kind of get torn apart and put back together and that that is really scary because yes. we can't because we don't know what's going to happen because if we could even think the thought of what that process is going to be, we would already be on the other side of it, right? Like if we, yeah. but we can't, we can't conceive of what that ontological apocalypse is going to be or what form it's going to take. And seemingly from everything that's going on in the world, it could take a lot of different forms and maybe a lot of different forms simultaneously. But it feels like we're talking about more than just something that's shocking, but something that's kind of annihilating in a, in a real way. Yeah. You know, uh, I, by the way, I, as you know, when you told me the name of your, of your company, I was like, I, I must be a part of that. <laughs> the name is so perfect. Um, the, uh, remember, uh, apocalypse also means revelation, you know, so that, you know, the, the last book of the Christian Bible, you know, can, is sometimes called the book of revelation and sometimes called the apocalypse. And so the, the apocalypse is the revelation sort of of what was always there all along, right? So that's what, you know, so what do we, what do we have? What's going to be revealed to us is a, duff, a different ontology, a different way of being, but, and that could be great. And it, okay. And even if it isn't great, it, it's what is. And, and I, I think you have to learn to embrace what is, but this thing that's being revealed to us, this, this way of being is not our way of being. Or at least not the one that we've been, been living for, you know, the last, you know, tens of thousands of years. And it, it's very like, this is what sort of views I have about the afterlife. Um, if there is an afterlife, it's very hard for me to look forward to it because it's so different from anything I can fathom in this life. But I don't know how to look forward to something I can't even understand. All I know is it's not my life now. Okay. Well, what are we, what are we kind of finding out here with this notion of, of apocalypse and revelation is like the world has an afterlife, right? Your humanity has an afterlife collectively, and that could be great, but I don't know how we can look forward to that because it's not us. It's not what we are now. 
Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that... I'm not sure. Sorry. No, absolutely. And I think... I think you see that anxiety in our culture a lot. There's sort of a lot of wishing ourselves back that goes on in our culture now. Yeah. Um, You know, all of our feelings of, you know, hope and optimism are often kind of rooted in this idea that we can go back, you know, to the when things were more stable, when things were, you know, whatever time period a person thinks was, you know, the best. Well, mostly in like the last 40 years, like back to the 50s or maybe back to the 90s or when things yeah. just didn't seem quite so heavy. But unfortunately, it seems like, you know, we have to we have yeah. to look forward, even if we don't know what exactly it is that we're looking forward to. Yeah. And, and, and let's just use the 1950s as an example. When anyone, you know, in my circles talks about how great it would be to go back to that. I'm like, well, are you a woman? Because I don't think so. You know, are you are you an African-American? I don't think you want to go back to the 1950s, right? Sort of, you know, one person's nostalgia is someone else's nightmare. Um, and I think that's important for these kinds of things. Um, have we ever talked about a book by a guy named Jonathan Lear called Radical Hope? I don't think so. Okay. This this is one of my favorite books to come out in like the last 10 years. And it Jonathan Lear is a brilliant philosopher who has uh, taught for a long time at the University of Chicago. He wrote a book called Radical Hope, which is a recounting of the life of the last um, chief of the Crow uh Native Americans. Okay. And his name was Plenty Coop. And Plenty Coop was, was, was the chief who brought them into the reservation. And after he brought them to the reservation, you know, many years later, he had, a, he had a friend who was writing a biography of him and he asked him to give his life story. And he gave this brilliant life story from his birth and like hunting the buffalo as a youth and then fighting in the wars. And then, and then the the, he gets to the reservation and Plenty Coop was a relatively young man at that point when they get to the reservation. And then he said, he ends it right there and says, and after that, nothing happened and, and, and nothing, what the thing that happened was nothing, right? Nothing happened. And the biographer said, what do you mean? You know, we've been friends all that time. And, and, and he, and Plenty Coop says, well, you would be better able to tell me what happened than, than for me, than for me to say, because I, to me, nothing has happened. And what he's saying is the ontology that he lived in was all built around the buffalo hunt and that was over as soon as they got in the reservation it was over so he, he was unable to make sense of the world anymore in any meaningful way the, at that moment he had an apocalypse his world ended okay and i think what's going on we're, we're having like we're we're experiencing nothing happening right now okay now interesting thing about, about plenty coops is plenty coops sorry is he had this choice he was still the leader of his people and he he had to choose between on the one hand, there are elements who are saying, we got to go out, you know, just like some of the more radicals did and like, they'll go the way of sitting bull or, you know, or, or drawn over and, and just better dead than, than to go to the reservation. So it's like, it's sort of like suicidal. There's no way things could be, but they, but the way they were in our past, they kind of cling to the past. And there was all these religious revivals of the old religion and stuff for them that, that we're just going to bring it. We're going to like go back to the way it was. And Plenty Coop says, well, it's just not available. We can't do that anymore. All right. And there are others who said, hey, let's just become like white people. Okay. Let's just assimilate completely all that. And Plenty Coop says, but that doesn't work either. Okay. And what he said, he has a dream in which he's told he has to have the virtue of the chickadee. And in their mythology, the chickadee is a mimic. And what, but what he means by mimic is we have to listen. We have to learn to listen for what to do. Okay. And so Plenty Coop just sort of holds himself in a kind of suspension waiting to hear something new and along the way he actually turned the crow into the most successful tribe that went to the reservation um because he was willing to kind of like hang out in the nothing and wait for something new to show itself i think it's a beautiful story yeah it is beautiful and it's it seems like it really applies here and that you know there seems to be something that's like you said trying to get our attention and whatever that thing is uh we might want to try to get still and listen yeah. to what it has to say because it might be able to help us. I, I counsel the virtue of the chickadee. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, that's an amazing place to leave it for the free portion of the episode. Um, we will be continuing with another 30 minutes of conversation for paid members of Dreamland, and I hope you guys will join us over there. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. 
Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.